But I got bad news, I don't have gummy worms for everybody here. Sorry. But I have something sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. Let's open up to the book of Numbers, chapter 21. I want to share with you one of my absolute favorite stories in all of the scripture, and hopefully by the end of our time together, you will see why. Now, here in Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, uh, this is a story I really want our church to know, and uh, it's been a rough time if you've been reading through the book of Numbers. Anybody out there still reading through the book of Numbers with us? Well, this was a bad week for Israel. From Numbers 11 to 20, that's what we read last week, and now this week we keep reading in, in chapter 21 that we're looking at right now, page 129 if you got one of our books. But the Israelites, they really started complaining against the Lord. That's one of the themes here in the book of Numbers. And this is a classic example of them complaining to God in Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. And out of respect for the scripture, I am going to ask if we could all stand up together right now for our scripture reading. And at first, I don't know if you're familiar with the story of the bronze serpent or if you've never heard it before. At first, it might seem like a crazy story, but I really want us to dive into it. Let's give this our full and undivided attention. This is what God uh, said, this is, this is what he said through Moses. This is what happened between God and his people. Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. And set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. That's the reading of God's word. Please go ahead and have your seat. And uh, I don't know if we understand how serious a sin complaining really is. In our minds, complaining might not be that big of a deal. It might think it's a, it's a minor sin. We might be just used to it because so many people are complaining and expressing negativity all around us. But God is not okay with his people complaining. In fact, look at how it defines uh, the complaining here in verse 5. Everybody look back at verse 5. And here's maybe something that you and I need to think about. It says, the people spoke against God and against Moses. So when you complain, when you say, hey, this is taking too long, I don't like waiting, hey, this food, for example, that, as they complain about here, hey, what I have is not good enough for me. 
You see, it's not just like you're complaining or you're venting or you're ranting or you're just letting it out. No, there's actually someone who's hearing what you say and is taking it personally. Like what you're saying is, God, what you've given me is not good enough. Your timing is not perfect. I am not satisfied with your grace in my life. I need more. You haven't been good enough to me. That's basically what you're saying when you complain. And a lot of times, complaining is directed towards leadership. Kids complain to their parents. Can I get an amen from any parents out there, right? We've heard the are we there yet. We've heard nonsensical complaints like this one here from the Israelites. We have no food and we hate, we loathe our food. Which one is it? Do you have no food or do you hate the food? Again, can you pick a side, please, right? I mean, that's how it is. We've all heard kids complain, and maybe you cooked the meal, or you provided so we could purchase the meal, and here you are giving that meal to your kids, and now they're complaining in your face about the meal. How do you feel about that? Same way that God feels when you complain about your circumstances in life as if God is not sovereign over your life. No, you're complaining to somebody, and he hears every complaint if you were here last week the people were so afraid of going to battle in the promised land that they were going to die that they complained and wished they had died in the wilderness and god heard their complaint and he said you're going to wander around for 40 years in the wilderness so that you will die there i heard you complain you're going to get what you complained about so we see here complaining for the sin that it really is because you are speaking against God. Go back to Numbers 11 and that, we, that we read at the beginning of the week. I hope you're doing the reading. And if you haven't been doing the reading, pick it up with us at chapter 21 and start reading. During the week, there's a schedule there on the back of your handout of what to read each day as we're reading through Numbers, getting ready for Deuteronomy coming up. But in Numbers 11 here, verse 1, see, this is a real bad shift. The first week we read 1 through 10, and it seemed like things were going well. God was blessing his people. He was preparing them for war. He gave them trumpets, and if they blew these trumpets, he would remember his people and, and come in to save them from their enemies. But then this happens, Numbers 11, verse 1, and the downward spiral of the people of Israel, it really begins with the sin of complaining. And it says here, the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, and when the Lord heard it, see, that's the key. This is going to change the way you think about complaining if you haven't made this association that every single time you complain, the Lord, your Father in heaven, hears your complaining. Just every time you hear, maybe, if you've got young kids and they're complaining, maybe you've got teenagers and maybe you have adult children who have left the house and they're still complaining. Next time you hear your kids complain, just remind yourself, I wonder if that's what I sound like to my Father in heaven. He hears it. And look what it says here. His anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. God hears complaining, and what does he think to do? He responds in the fire of anger, and like fire starts at the outside of the camp. If you were inside the camp, it would appear that you just got surrounded by a ring of fire. 
That's how God feels about your complaining. In verse 2, the people do what they do in our passage in chapter 21. So this has happened a few times here with Israel. The people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And then it gives us another example of their complaining. Even though that fire came, it didn't stop them being greedy, wanting for more, discontent with what God had given them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Remember the free sushi, everybody? The cucumbers, oh, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. See how they keep saying there's nothing except for the amazing manna that's falling from the sky every day to miraculously provide for us. But we really have nothing to eat around here. And... uh, That kind of complaining, if you read this week, it continues all through these chapters. There's a rebellion against the leadership of Moses. Even Moses' sister, Miriam, and his brother Aaron turn against him. And by the end of this run of chapters, Miriam's dead, Aaron's dead, and Moses has gotten so frustrated with God's people that when God told him to speak to the rock and water would come out of it, Moses took his staff and he struck the rock twice in his frustration and for that God says you will not enter the promised land I mean the complaining of the people of Israel is literally killing them in the wilderness and now as the older generation is dying off and the new generation is rising up we get another example of complaining Why are we out here going to die in the wilderness? Well, everybody should know why. It's because of your own lack of faith. It's because of your own unbelief, your sin. That's why you're out there, but instead they're blaming God and not taking personal responsibility. And so, I mean, can you imagine that? Verse 6, because of their complaining... The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. How about that? Next time your kids don't like dinner, throw a snake on the table and see what happens, right? I mean, that's intense right there. Let me just tell you right now, God does not think of complaining as a minor sin. God takes it personally that you're speaking against him. And as Christian people, living in the church of Jesus, saved by the new covenant, by the blood of Christ, complaining is not acceptable in our lives, not at all. We shouldn't be tolerating even a little bit of it. In fact, it's one of the things that's really supposed to set us apart from the world that we're living in, from the other people around us who don't know the goodness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be set apart because we're not out there expressing the same negative complaints that so many other people are. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. I want everybody, if you've got a Bible, turn over to Philippians chapter 2 and let's, let's review this command that Paul writes to this church. Does anybody remember when we had the summer of joy last year? 2019, we went through the book of Philippians together, and we got to this passage, Philippians 2, verses 14 and 15. It's on page 981, if you got one of our Bibles. 
In fact, I recommend the sermon uh, that we talked about this passage, if you want to dive into it deeper, because this was the sermon where we really started saying, hey, we need to go back and relook at the law. And this is really the beginning. That sermon was really the beginning of what has now led us as a church to go through the law of Moses Uh, These last three months, we went through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Now we're in Numbers. Next month, we're going to conclude with Deuteronomy. It really got inspired by this passage right here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, that says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. How many things should we do without grumbling? Wow. That's a high standard right there. I mean, the book of Numbers, one of the main impressions that you get if you actually read through the book, if you actually study it and take it to heart, is you get the the idea, I mean, the way I remember it is Numbers rhymes with cucumbers, which is just one of the complaints of the grumblers of Israel, right? And look what he says here in verse 15. The reason you can't do anything with grumbling, you can't be grumbling against God, you can't be disputing with the leaders, the authorities that God has put in your life. I understand everybody else in the office is complaining about your boss. I understand all the other students are complaining about their teachers. I know every other commuter is complaining about the 405. We live right around here in Southern California, and people find a way to complain about the weather. People are complaining about everything. I understand that, but the command for you is to do all things without any of that. No speaking against God, no speaking against the leaders he has placed in your life. And here's why, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Notice how it immediately connects grumbling with you're one of God's kids, and your complaints are heard by your father. Make that connection that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. As my dad preached many times when I was growing up, stop whining and start shining. That's what it's saying right here. And it says here this phrase, crooked and twisted generation. See, that's what lets us know that when Paul wrote this to the Philippians, he was referring to the people of Israel. You could write down if you're taking notes, crooked and twisted generation is used in Deuteronomy 32.5. We're going to get there, and it's recounting the history. And the crooked, they didn't go on the straight and narrow. The twisted, they perverted what God told them. The crooked and twisted generation, that's the generation that's wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, complaining to God the entire time. Okay, so sometimes when you read that, you just think crooked and twisted generation is talking about the world we're living in right now. No, it's recalling to mind. This is definitely what Paul was thinking. It's what he expected the Philippians to understand. It's what you and I would know if we were going to rightly interpret this passage. The crooked and twisted generation is what we're reading about right now in the book of Numbers. Their example of complaining and the devastating consequences that happened to them is supposed to be a lesson to us as Christian people now in the church that we don't grumble. We don't dispute. We receive all the goodness of God, and we say thank you to our Father in heaven. We don't complain about his grace in our lives. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Point number one, let's stop complaining. Let's stop complaining. 
Let's make it. that. Let's learn from numbers, okay? We, I, we don't want fiery serpents coming biting us all here at the church. Uh, we don't want fire consuming the outskirts of the camp. We don't want to be wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because we're dissatisfied with what God is doing. We got to stop complaining. We got to hold each other accountable to that uh, throughout the week. We got we to make sure that's the way it is in our families. No, when we're complaining, we're complaining. We are speaking against God, and that is not acceptable among God's people. And it angers God. There's judgment from God for that. Go back now to Numbers 21. And, and it's very clear here that God, when he brings these judgments, these people have, have pushed him so far. They have tested him so much. Now their, their lack of patience is testing God's patience. They're complaining about the food that he is miraculously providing for them in the wilderness. And so God sends serpents, and they're referred to as fiery serpents, and it's not like these, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, amazing creatures of like snakes that are on fire. We don't think that's what it means as much as it, it's a serpent, and when the serpent bites you, that venom that now spreads through your body, it inflames your skin. So it feels like you are on fire when you are bitten by one of these snakes. I mean, this is a severe consequence for the sin of complaining. And it says that these fiery serpents, first of all, just the fact, just the thought of letting some snakes loose in the auditorium uh, would freak me out. I don't know. Anybody else afraid? We're not having any snakes for pets at my house. I don't know where you think. Maybe you like snakes. Uh, That's between you and the Lord. Go for it, right? Personally, I'm with Moses. First time God was teaching Moses how to do miracles, and he had his staff, and he put his staff down, and it turned into a snake. It says, first time, you remember that from uh, Exodus, what Moses did? He ran away from it, right? That's what I would have been doing, right? Oh, amazing miracle. I'm out of here, right? I mean, I'm terrified of snakes. So already, this this is like a, I don't know why I love teaching this story to kids, because it's like a horror movie is what this is. I mean, this would be a rated R flick. I wouldn't go to see it. I'd be scared by the preview of this movie. You know what I mean? People running for their lives as snakes come, and then the snake bites you, and it literally starts feeling like you're on fire, and then you're watching your loved one die from snake bite. I mean, this is intense. I mean, this is a brutal consequence that is happening here uh, among the people. And the people, they, when this happens, the people came to Moses, and they don't always do this. Just because there's a brutal judgment of God for sin, just because there's a severe consequence, doesn't mean people always repent or they always confess that sin. No, sometimes when there's judgment for the sin, people just harden their hearts even more. We know we're going to see that in the final judgment that is yet to come. When God really pours out his wrath on planet Earth, I mean, you can read in Revelation these descriptions of judgment, like literally bowls of wrath being poured, falling from the sky onto our planet. And it says people don't repent. They just harden their heart against God. But in this situation, the people do come to God. They do confess their sin. And they come to Moses first. And it says the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Now that's amazing. 
Because that's what it said they did. Look back at verse 5. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Now we are here in verse 7. They're saying, we have spoken against the Lord Yahweh and against you. Man, we should know as people who sin, that's one of the hardest things to do is say your own sin, to confess it. A lot of times it takes us in our lives, the Bible telling us, here's the sin you've done. And even when we can see in the Scripture our sin and we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, even then there's a real temptation for many people when they have that conviction, that sting, the Word is cutting you, your your sin is being exposed. A lot of us, we just want to harden our hearts and go on and act like everything's okay. And these people on this time, they said, yeah, what we did... We, what was wrong? We sinned. We spoke against God and we spoke against you. They acknowledge, they take personal responsibility for their sin. They confess it. And they say, Moses, will you pray for the Lord to take the serpents from us? And Moses prayed for the people. And then we'll see in verse 8 and 9 how God answers that prayer. But not only was complaining a serious sin, the people, they owned up to it. They acknowledged it. That's really what it means to confess your sin. It means you agree with God about your sin. You say the same thing that God says about your sin. You own it. You're reading the Bible. You're going through it. Right now in Numbers, clearly there's this, a couple of sins we're seeing. There was a real lack of faith. There was unbelief to not go into the promised land. And then now we're really studying today this sin of complaining, of being dissatisfied with how God is providing and protecting you in your life. And we see that they now say, yes, that's exactly what we're doing. And, and they don't just say it to God privately in their own prayer. They say it to Moses. They say it to the man that is their leader, someone they know is righteous among them, that has a right relationship with God. They know Moses can speak to God as a man speaks to his friend face to face. And so they confess their sin, not even just maybe in their own heart before the Lord, but they ask Moses and they confess it to him. And he prays for them. See, confessing sin in the Bible is not a bad thing. Confessing sin in the Bible is the godly thing to do. And this was hard for me to understand because I grew up going to church, and a lot of times at church, people like to act like they've got it all together. People like to put on kind of that Sunday morning, not only that Sunday morning dress, but they like to put on that Sunday morning face where, I, I, hey, I'm good. Everything's fine here. I'm doing, I'm doing great. That's what a lot of people like to act like when they, uh, when they come to church. And so I got the impression growing up, and I had a lot of different people teaching me at many different churches, but somehow I got the impression, oh, we don't confess sin. We just, we just want to try to act like we don't have it. We just want to keep getting good enough so we don't have to deal with it. See, that was shocking then when I started studying the Bible and it told me very clearly that, no, confessing sin is what God's people do because they want to be in the light as he is in the light. So when they have anything that's wrong or anything that's against God, they acknowledge it to God. They bring it out into the open. They don't want to have any hypocrisy or any secrets. And so godly people confess sin to the Lord and he is faithful and just to forgive them. And they also even confess it to other people people openly turn with me to psalm 51 and let's see a great example of confession here in psalm 51 from from david 
And, and if you haven't really gotten into a habit of confessing sin, oh, that's something I really want you to think about here today. Like when you sin, do you own it? Do you accept responsibility? Do you go to God and say that what you did was a sin and ask him to forgive you? Do you even share that sin with other people? I'll tell you, some of the best things we have seen at this church are people who have become open about confessing their sin to God, and they've even gone to other people and confessed it. Now, David, he fell into real sin, the sin of adultery, which he tried to cover up with the sin of murder, and God had to send Nathan the prophet to confront King David and to say to him, you are the man, you are the man in sin. You're the bad guy in your own story, King David. And David, when he heard that confrontation from the prophet, he wrote this psalm in response. And and you might have heard this psalm before, immediately in verse 1. This is page 474. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Please don't give me the judgment I deserve. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. I can see my sin now for what it is. After I got confronted, there was my sin right in front of me. And look at here, against you and you only have I sinned. He sees his sin as doing something against God. It was personal, he sees, to God. I've done what is evil in your sight. Now, maybe you're familiar where he's just asking God, purge me, wash me, cleanse me. But the part that a lot of people don't know about is more the end of Psalm 51. Look with me at verse 16. Psalm 51, verse 16. Here's, Here's this idea that we've been seeing in the law. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Now, if you were here with us, when we went through Leviticus, we read through the offerings that God told his people to do at the tabernacle and how, depending on how much money they had, they would either bring a bull or a lamb or sometimes just two birds, and they would bring the animal up there to the the entrance of the tabernacle, and they would lay their hand on the head of the animal, and then they would kill the animal. That was something they had to do to acknowledge their sin, like their sin was going on to this animal, and this animal had to die. The blood had to be shed because of their sin. Then the priest would be there, and he would take the blood, and he would sprinkle it on the altar, and then they would walk away atoned for their sin. It says in Leviticus 1, right with God because of the sacrifice, the offering of the animal, and that significance of laying their hand on the animal. Like, this is my sin, and this animal has to die because of my sin. But what David's saying here is this isn't just about going through the motions, Now look what he says here in verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 
See, what David's saying is you can get the animal. You can go to the tabernacle. You can put your hand on the animal. You can kill the animal. You can walk away. And if you weren't broken about your sin, if you weren't sorry about your sin, if you didn't really confess that what you did was wrong to God, yeah, you can do the sacrifice. You can give the animal. But it's about your heart before God. So many people think that, hey, if I just go to church, I'll be right with God. If I just read the Bible, I'll be right with God. If I just do good things, I'll be right with God. No, what makes you right with God is when you admit to God that you don't do good things, that you aren't good, and that you need Him to forgive you because you are broken and you're sorry about your sin. This is what God's looking for. This is the sacrifice that God is well pleased with when the reason you do the things that you do is because you're really sorry about your sin. You have that godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Hey, when was the last time that you had a broken and contrite heart and you went to God and you said, I have sinned and here's what I did? That's what godly people do. Point number two, you got to start confessing. You got to start confessing. Hopefully, this is a practice you've already been doing. But let me just tell you if you think, well, well I'm fine, I'm good, I don't, really need to, uh, I don't really need to get into it, well, let me flip that question around and let me ask you this Are you a perfect person as you sit here today? See, I know, I know nobody around here would claim perfection. Well, if you're not claiming perfection, that means there's something to confess. That means confession is going to be a regular practice in your life where you're going to have to admit that something you said, thought, or did was sin according to God's word. And you're going to have to come and say that to God with a broken and contrite heart, like genuinely sorry, not just going through the motions of praying a prayer or, or feeling bad, but like really broken to the point where you're asking God to forgive you and you're seeing this was between you and God. I'll tell you what, there have been days here at this church where people came in here shattered. They came in here in pieces, and those were some of the best days of their lives. I've had people walk up to me unannounced. No one was asking them questions. No one was prying into their life. They just came up, and they said, hey, I need to tell you something, and they started sharing, and I know this has happened throughout our church, people sharing dark secrets of the soul. Things that have been repressed, maybe for a long time. Things that they've never talked to another person about. And here they are voluntarily, willingly, and you can feel the brokenness. You can feel like this is a big deal to them. And they're like, I have to tell you this. And it's coming from that idea in James 5, 16. Confess your sins to one another so that you can pray for one another so that you may be healed. And I've seen that. I've had men come and share with me things they've never talked to anybody else about. And we prayed about it together. And there was tears and there was real sorrow before God and they walked away and that issue that had been such a problem for them had really dominated their life they were healed from it after that confession like it wasn't the same after that because they brought it out into the light 
There's a promise here. This is a verse that I would encourage you to know, to memorize. Psalm 51, verse 17. There's a promise here that when you come to God, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. When you come to God and you come with that broken, contrite heart, you come genuinely sorry about how you sinned against God, God will never despise someone who comes to confess their sin. The promise of God is that he will forgive you for your sin and he will cleanse you from that unrighteousness. God will not look down on you when you look up to him in confession. When was the last time you came before God with a broken spirit and a contrite heart and you said, I'm the man, I've sinned. Will you please forgive me? See, that's what the people do here. They really confess their sin. They really confess it to Moses. They ask Moses to pray for them, and God hears their prayer. Turn back with me to Numbers 21. I mean, those are two great principles that we just talked about. We need to stop complaining. That's a command for us. We need to definitely confess our sins. David's an example. That's throughout the Scripture. But this is the real point of the story. This is why I love this story. It's how God answers their prayers. They pray that God will take the serpents away. We're sorry about how we spoke against you and against Moses. Please take these serpents away. They're biting our loved ones. Our loved ones are dying. Please, they're going to come and bite us. Take the serpents away. Well, God doesn't just remove the snakes. It's not like they just slither off into the wilderness or something, or the ground opens up and swallows all the snakes or something like that. No, the way that God answers this prayer is so curious. It's so interesting. Look at verse 8 here. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. I mean, that's, that's interesting. He doesn't just remove the snakes. The snakes are still there. The snakes are going to bite the people. The people are going to feel like they're on fire. They're going to feel like they're about to die. But if there's this serpent set up on a pole, it's like if they can just see that serpent on the pole, if they look at it, then they'll live, and the inflammation and the fire will go away, and they won't die from the snake bite. Now, I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with this image of a bronze serpent on a pole, but it's actually an image still used in the medical community to this day. In fact, it's a famous image among the people of Israel. It says in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, that later on in the history of Israel, they offered sacrifices to the bronze serpent on the pole, like it had some kind of healing power in and of itself. And so King Hezekiah has to later on destroy this bronze serpent because people are starting to make offerings to the bronze serpent. Like, that's where the healing comes from. So God sets up this fascinating thing where you're still going to get bit, you're still going to feel like you're on fire, but if you look at this, you will live. Let me ask you, if you got bit by the snake, would you be crawling on all fours to get a glimpse of the bronze serpent? Might you move your tent a little closer to the bronze serpent, you think, from that point? Do you think you would just be sitting there 24-7 staring at the bronze serpent from that point forward? 
I mean, what is God trying to say? I mean, this is an, an amazing picture of people running from snakes, snakes slithering after them, biting them, and feeling like they're on fire and going to die. But it's like they're having a near-death experience that God's saving them out of just by looking at this serpent on a pole. They live. They're miraculously healed. Why? Why not just remove the snakes? He just stopped the fire in chapter 11. Why here does he set up this pole that's this, that Moses has that people are looking at? Turn with me to John chapter 3, where, where the most famous verse in all the Bible is, John chapter 3. And I want to draw your attention to the two verses right before John 3.16. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus, he refers to this story in Numbers 21 in his famous conversation with Nicodemus. In fact, this is the picture that we're supposed to have in our minds when we get to John 3.16. Jesus takes this story out of Numbers 21 with the fiery serpents, and he uses it as an example of the gospel as an example of himself. He says the reason God answered that prayer that way 1,400 years earlier in the wilderness was he was setting up Jesus Christ. Look what Jesus says. This is John 3, 14. This is page 888. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So remember, here in John 3, if you've ever read through this passage, where we have the famous verse, John 3, 16. This is a conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law to the Jews. And he's already rebuked Nicodemus. Don't you know the law that you're supposed to be teaching? The prophets, the writings? Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know it? So now here he is pulling out this story, Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. Hey, remember when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus? So the Son of Man be lifted up. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now this story about fiery serpents biting people and people looking at the pole to live, that's the setup for John 3.16, everybody. This phrase, the son of man, is how Jesus loved to refer to himself. He's quoting Daniel chapter 7 where it says that one like a son of man will come riding on the clouds in all of his glory. That's how Jesus liked to talk about himself. And he said, hey, just like that serpent was put on the pole in the wilderness, so me, the son of man, so I must be lifted up. Now, if you read through the Gospel of John, which is written by the disciple of Jesus, who was an eyewitness to Jesus' whole ministry, he was there when Jesus died on the cross, he ran to the empty tomb, and he saw that Jesus had risen from the dead. This is written by the Apostle John, and he uses this phrase, lifted up, that he's now getting from Moses putting the serpent on a pole and lifting up that pole. That phrase, lifted up, is referring in the Gospel of John to Jesus being lifted up on the cross. And it's there on the cross that he's going to die for our sins, that he's going to draw all people to himself. It's there that he is going to save all of those who come to him. There, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. There, everybody who can see the cross and they can believe in Jesus dying for them, when they look at Jesus on the cross, they will live. 
This is what God is setting up in Numbers 21, a picture that even a child could be taught and understand. The real conclusion that I didn't show you that we get to every time we tell the crazy gummy worm sermon to the kids is we say, hey, it's not really about a serpent on a pole. It's about a cross. And you've sinned. You've been bitten by the serpent, and you're going to die. I mean, what an image. The serpent is the one who deceived Eve. The serpent is the one. We know he's the bad guy. We know he's the one who deceived them by questioning what God really said. And there was the fall into sin. And from Adam and Eve to every generation, from your parents to you, we have all been born in sin. That's what David goes on to say in Psalm 51. It's not just that we sin. We are sinners. It's the way we were born. It's what it means to be a human being in this fallen world. Like we have all been bitten by the serpent. We are all going to die. And even the scripture is clear that the punishment for sin is fire. Like people who die in their sin, they go to a place of darkness and fire that doesn't stop burning like this story this horror story from numbers 21 is actually an analogy it's a picture for our lives that we've been bitten and we are going to die and there's only one way to be saved you have to see jesus christ on the cross you have to call on his name and then you will live like this is the picture for everybody it says that god loved us so much that he was willing to send his son to be that sacrifice. And he took all of the judgment, this righteous anger that God has, this fiery anger of wrath, he poured that out on Jesus so that you wouldn't have to experience it. God so loved the world, he gave his only son, here's the key line for us, that whoever, what? It's, it's It's this idea of looking by faith, of seeing him on the cross, will not perish but have eternal life now we think about those two concepts wrong okay we had jordan share that horrible story about how how he got hit by a car and we thought that maybe it could have killed him and that's what people think like at that moment maybe he would have perished or because he believed in jesus christ he would have had eternal life that's not what john three sixteen is saying it's not saying when you die someday you will either perish or have eternal life it's saying that you are right now perishing will not perish means that you're already without jesus when you're born you've already been bit you're already going to die the wages of your sin will surely be death and in death you will experience all the consequence all the judgment of your sin no you are born perishing on planet earth that's what we got from our parents and eternal life is salvation that you experience at the moment you look at jesus on the cross you live from that moment on Eternal life is not living forever. Eternal life is not going to heaven. No, Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, eternal life is knowing God. That's what it is. It's a higher quality of life. It's real life, life abundant, life of the soul, spiritual life inside of you. And yes, you have it forever. Yes, you get to be with God when you die. But the moment that you see Jesus on the cross, you live Just like those people, feeling that fire coming through their body, but they looked at the bronze serpent, they lived, they were healed. 
Same exact way for us today. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the servant, so the Son of Man will be lifted up and whoever believes in him. Can you see Jesus on the cross? Can you see him up there dying for you? Have you trusted that Jesus is the one who can save you from your sin? The moment that you put your faith in Jesus, you have eternal life from that moment on. This is a picture of you as a sinner crawling around, already starting to feel the fire, thinking you're going to die, and then you see Jesus lifted up, and you believe in him. Let's just think for a moment together about Jesus on that cross. Let's think about him there with that crown of thorns in his head, with the nails in his hands and his feet, and the blood that's flowing down all over his naked body where he's exposed, and the shame and the humiliation up there, and there's blood forming a little pool down at the foot of the cross, and he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God is now judging his son for your sin. Can you see that? I want to know, when was the day that you looked at Jesus up there on the cross? And the story finally made sense. The gospel, it spoke to you. And on that day, you knew you were a sinner. And you knew what you had done against God. And you knew the only way that you were going to get out of this problem that you now had with God was through the sacrifice of his son. And you looked at Jesus and you trusted in him and you lived Do you have that day? Hey, I'm here to tell you right now that for many people in this room, today needs to be that day. Like, I'm here to tell you a story that is so simple, children can understand it, that you need to see that you have already been bitten, that you are already in sin, that you have already done wrong. Even just complaining is an offense against God, unacceptable. And you are on your way, even now, perishing apart from God, on your way towards death. And if you don't look at Jesus and trust in him and believe that he's the only one who can save you by dying for your sins, he rose from the dead, he's been exalted to the right hand, he is the Lord, and everyone who calls on his name will be saved. If you've never called on the name of Jesus, if you've never looked, you need to today so you can live before it's too late. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10, where it describes this idea of of calling out, of believing to be saved. This is Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9, page 946. This is something that really happens to people, okay? This is something that that needs to happen to every single person here in this room. So we're either going to remember when it happened to us, and we're going to have communion here in a moment, that you could remember the day that you were feeling the flames of hell starting starting to burn within you. You were feeling so convicted about your sin, and then you saw Jesus who could take away your sin, and you looked at him, and you lived. We're either going to remember that day, or today needs to be that day. And it says here in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, what does it say there? You will be what? If you look at Jesus on the cross, you will live. Now you got to know who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God. 
And he humbled himself to be born as a man. He was obedient as a man to die on that cross. He was voluntarily lifted up to pay for your sin. And on the third day, he rose triumphantly out of the grave. He's been exalted to the right hand of God. And he's been given now the name above all names. He is now Lord of heaven and earth with all authority. And you got to acknowledge who Jesus really is. It says you have to believe here. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead. So it's working on two levels. One, you're believing it on the inside, you're trusting in it. Two, you believe it so strongly, it's coming out of your mouth. You're confessing it, you're saying it to God, you're saying it to other people. You don't care who knows it, because you know who Jesus is. You looked at him, and you're alive, and you're ready to share it with the world. That's the idea here. You believe it inside, you say it outside. And then it goes on, verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified. From that moment, you're declared righteous by God. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. So you're confessing two things that you're saying are true. I am a sinner and Jesus is the Savior. And I'm calling on his name to save me. And then it says this. Look at these promises. The scripture The scripture says, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? It says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How many people, when they look at Jesus, are saved? They live. All of them, it says you got to call on his name or you're going to die in the flame. The choice is yours. Every single person here. We've already been bitten. Some of us have looked and we're alive. Some of us right now are crawling around, broken but not contrite, acting like we're going to somehow save ourselves. There's only one way that you will ever be saved. you got to look at Jesus and you got to live. you got to believe in him. We're talking about life and death right now. We're playing for keeps here. We're talking about people are getting hit by cars right on this street out here. We're talking about we did a memorial service yesterday here at this church for a freshman at Marina High School. We're talking about tomorrow is not promised to any person here in this room. I want you to think if if you were in that situation, if we could go back to the fiery serpents for a second. I want you to think about your family actually being in a situation like that. And what if it wasn't you that got bit? What if it was one of your family members that got bit? And you were just terrified at this snake. And this snake, and it, and it bit one of your family members, and then it went off chasing somebody else. And hearing you now, you have your family member. Picture them. You're holding them in your arms, and you're like, we got to get around this corner. we got to get around this tent so you can see the bronze serpent, so you can live. And your family member says, no, I don't want to look at the bronze serpent. What would you do in that moment to your family member? You would beg them to come with you and look at the bronze serpent. You would cry. You would, you would pick them up. You would drag them. You would pull them. You would do everything you possibly could. You have to come and look at this serpent. You have to come. If you don't, you're going to die. If you look, you will live. What are you waiting for? It's right over here. Come with me. 
Do you understand that God is right now making that appeal to you? He loves you more than you love your family member. And he's saying, I sent my son. And if you look at my son, you will live. Why won't you look at him and live? Why would you rather die in the fire? There are people in this room right now who are going to die in the fire if you don't look at Jesus on the cross and see your sin being paid for and trust in him. And God's using a story about fiery serpents to show you that you got to look and you got to live. And you're going to walk out of here right now and say, I don't want to look. Like, I'm just pleading with you. God's making his appeal through the scripture to you here today. Today is the day for you to call on the name of Jesus to be saved. So we're going to take communion right now. I'm going to ask the ushers to go get the communion and bring it forward. And everybody, if you have called on the name of Jesus, this is for Christian people to remember Jesus on the cross, to see him lifted up there. That's what we looked at, and we believed in him, and we lived. This is his body in the bread. This is his blood in the cup. If you have never really believed in Jesus, if you haven't confessed him with your mouth and believed in your heart, if you haven't called on his name and looked at him on the cross to live, you don't need this little piece of bread and this cup. You need to right now, you need to come to God with a broken and contrite spirit and confess your sin and call on the name of Jesus. Today is the day. Now is the time. So their band's going to have a song while they hand out the communion. Then we'll take it all together. This is a moment for you to deal with your sin before God or maybe for you to call on the name of Jesus to be saved. And after the service, if you want to call on his name, we'll have people right here up front ready to talk with you so that today you could look at Jesus and you could live. That's point number three. You got to believe in Jesus and live. Believe in Jesus. Please look at him on the cross. Let me pray right now. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for this story of what happened with Moses and the people and how you answered his prayer with this bronze serpent on the pole. And what's that all about? To then see that Jesus is saying, that's how you got to look at me lifted up on the cross. And everyone who believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. And so, Father, I pray right now for all my brothers and sisters here in this room that they would go back to when that first time they were really convicted, when they were broken, when they were contrite, when they felt the, the flames and they knew they'd been bitten and they were in sin and they were going to die and they were on their way to hell and they looked and they saw Jesus on the cross and they called on his name and from that moment they've had eternal life. Oh God, let us remember the death of Jesus Christ that paid for our sins. Let us feel once again what it was like to know we were forgiven, to know we were given a new life, to know that we were right with you. What an amazing day that was, the day that we were saved. And God, how amazing it would be right now at this service, in this room with these souls, that the people who know I haven't looked at Jesus, I haven't been broken about my sin, I haven't called on his name as the only way I could ever be saved, that right now, God, we ask you to save those souls here among us, that they would look at Jesus, that they could see him right now, that you would open their eyes and give them faith to see Jesus on the cross, and they could call out to him, they could look at him, and they could live. God, let us believe the promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. 
We pray this in his name.